Welcome to the sermon podcast for New Life Church's Cabot Campus. We are located at 3400 West Main Street in Cabot, Arkansas. Our service times are Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. To find more information about what we believe, upcoming events, and more, please visit newlifechurch.tv or you can text the word Cabot to 88,000. I'm excited to be here today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, and uh, it's going to be a little bit more teachy, I guess you could say today. That's because Ricky's hogging all the preaching, so I'm going to have to teach, and uh, it's a good little tandem up here today. Matthew 26, we're, we're going to talk about what kind of leads us in, into paths of failure, but then how God's redeeming grace is good enough to pull us out of wherever we are. Amen. Um, I want to talk about your pastors just for a minute, though, because I want to give honor where honor is due. I guess I've known James and Cody for, I don't, I think it's 18 or 19 years. They moved here from Colorado to be the kids' pastors in Conway. They were my kids' pastors. Can you believe that? That's back when James's hair was longer than Cody's. It was weird. Thank God he cut it. And uh, then they, they moved on to lead the, the internship at the church, and then they said yes to coming to be the campus pastors here. And, and look, I, I just know... Yeah, I mean, y'all love them. I love that. Uh, I just know they, they've always said yes to whatever's in front of them, but they're also probably the hardest workers I know. Every now and then, we have these staff serve days, and I'll serve beside James. You, you cannot outserve James Bennett, which is super annoying because I'm competitive, and I'll be trying to rake the leaves harder than him, and he'll outwit you, and I mean, his mental capacity and mental wit is just stronger than yours. You, you can't outwork the guy, and then I was thinking about that, though. Cody's the same way. That's who you want pastoring you. You want somebody who doesn't care to take the glory or the credit, but is just going to put on their work boots and work gloves and go at bat for you every single day. And I think the reason that their marriage is so strong, they're celebrating 20 years right now. I think the reason their marriage is so strong is because they serve one another. And I think the reason that this church is so strong is because they've passed down what it looks like to serve to you guys. And the reason there's a next-gen takeover and they're serving every few weeks is because it started with them. And so if you're just thankful for how they humbly serve, can we just give some honor where honor is due and thank our pastors, James and Cody. Amen. Like Ricky said, um, I am one of the sons, one of the kids of Pastor Rick and Michelle Bees that I hopped in the U-Haul. They tricked me into it. They said we were going to McDonald's in 2001. We left Baton Rouge and we landed in Conway, Arkansas. And there we were. And I was that kid. My dad tells this story sometimes where I would go around the first few months that the church started in the little kid life, uh, little life rooms, in the nursery, um, asking or telling all the, the workers that I was the pastor's kid for, for more leverage for extra cookies and, and candy in class. That's smart, right? Now, my mom told me, she pulled me aside. She said, Tanner, you can't do that. You're not going to tell people you're the pastor's son. You're just Tanner. And I said, yes, ma'am. I've always been a good listener. So the, uh, the next week, I came to church, and this lady found me, and she said, hey, aren't, aren't you the pastor's son? And I, look at her, I looked at her, and this is where it backfired. I said, well, I thought I was, but my mom said I'm not. <laughs> And uh, how many of y'all know the church had trouble growing that first year? We had a lot of work to do after that. Um, I, I got married about five years ago. My wife was here at the first service, and we just had a baby girl about 10 
almost 10 months ago. So she's driving around, I think, in the parking lot as we speak, trying to get her to fall asleep right now. Uh, time flies, guys. I told y'all she's 10 months, but she's, she's already driving, our daughter, Ella Jane. I have video proof. Look at this. She's got a car. She, I need a teacher to put her hands on the steering wheel, and she also doesn't look at the road, but that girl's cruising right there. Look at her. She's just driving without a care in the world. I love my family. Uh, doing student ministry has just made it more fun being married and now having a baby as well. So look, okay, we're in this series right now over the book of Acts, and we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. I have a verse from Acts I want to share, but I told y'all we were going to land in Matthew 26 for the majority of our, of our scripture Today. And then my hope is to kind of tie these two verses together. So let me give you a little context for Matthew 26 before we read a few scriptures together. This is Jesus walking with his disciples from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he has just told all of his disciples that he is going to be betrayed. And now he's on his way to the garden where all of this is about to go down. This is the night before he goes to the cross. So we're going to pick up in verse 33. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Let's skip down to verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside. Some translations say he went away back to his old life, weeping bitterly. Okay, the story is about Simon Peter and his greatest failure. One of my favorite things about being a youth pastor is, is I love taking students on missions trips, specifically international missions trips. We took one to Costa Rica back in June, and in international uh, locations, their, their phones don't work. And, and so I love taking a kid away from that. They have withdrawals for the first couple of days. They just like don't know what to do with their hands. They're just like shaking, and they're so awkward. And on top of that, we make them talk to strangers. It's, it's awesome. It's like, hey, go tell that person about Jesus. So for the first two days, it's kind of a disaster. And then a change happens about halfway through the trip. Uh, they start to have a different perception on what it looks like to share the word. They start to get confidence. And out of nowhere, they start to have really good quality conversations. So we were in Costa Rica in June. It's halfway through the trip. And we were about to go into this home to share the gospel. There was about six of us. We had split up into different teams. There were 25 of us total on the trip. But uh, the, the group I was in, six of us, we let Tori, which was the 17-year-old sweet girl, take the lead on the conversation. So we go into this home. And something you have to know about Costa Rica is that Costa Rica has, has deep 
Pentecostal roots, meaning if you grew up in Costa Rica going to church, there's a good chance you grew up in a church where there's a lot of moving and grooving during service, a lot of shouting, a lot of feedback. It's fun. And those people believe, and it's, it's really, really cool. But we go there, and this girl has no idea this is kind of their culture of church. So she starts praying over this lady, and as she's praying over this lady, the lady kind of starts to shake a little bit, and then that shaking turns into a full-body convulsion, and then she starts to scream, and then without any warning, the lady just stops, puts her hand to her sides, and falls all the way back, boom, and hits the ground. Now, about this time, the sweet 17-year-old girl looks up at me and says, Tanner, did I kill her? (laughs) And I was like, no, I don't think so. Just give her a minute. I think she'll be fine, and she was. That was one house, and then we moved to another house, and we prayed over this guy, and this dude told us a story about how before he moved to Costa Rica, he lived in Honduras, and it was his dream to make it to a high-level corporate job where he could provide for his family, and he did exactly that. In his low 30s, he made it to this position, which only lasted for about nine months because within a matter of nine months, he got into a fight with a coworker. He totally blew his opportunity. He got thrown in jail, and he lost everything. Now, I bring that story up to say that it really hurts me when I see friends in my life lose everything. It hurts me when I see people that have it all lose it all. You know, no one chooses to lose it all, yet it it still happens. Uh, Why does it happen? I would like to argue that it's because as humans, we're really good at building, but we're not so great at sustaining. It's like when you go to the beach as a kid, you don't have to teach a kid how to build a sandcastle. There's no booklet for it. There's no step-by-step process. Every kid just knows how to do it. It's like all kids were hardwired with the ability to do two things, how to roll their eyes and how to build sandcastles. And so they build this magnificent sandcastle and then they leave it and you come back the next day, but what happened to your sandcastle? is destroyed, right? The high tide came up and took it out. This is how it happens in life too. It seems like out of nowhere, destruction occurs. It's like, man, why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? How did I get to this place in life that I'm, that I'm currently finding myself in? Well, I would like to tell you guys today that I think there's actually steps that lead us towards failure, there's steps that lead us towards something today that we're gonna call self-sabotage. And, and you're gonna see it happen in Peter's life as well. He fell victim to these steps. But even though Peter failed big time, and I would like to argue that he failed big time. I mean, he denied the son of God to his face. And even though he failed big time, I, I want you guys to see the hope and the foreshadow that Christ gives you and me. Because just two months later, after Peter's probably greatest failure is in in his entire life. In the book of Acts in chapter four, which many scholars believe was probably 60 to 70 days later. In just that amount of time later, we find Peter preaching to 3,000 men, which all give their heart to Christ, not including women and children. And then later, this is written about him in Acts 4, 13. Remember, this is after his denial. When the council saw the boldness of Peter and John, and could see that they were obviously uneducated non-professionals, they were amazed and realized what being with Jesus had done for them. And I just want you guys to know, whatever your mess may be here today, whatever pit, big or small, that you may find yourself in, there's hope for you today. The title of my talk 
today is it's not over. It's not over, or as we would say in Little Rock, it ain't over yet. Turn to your neighbor and say, it ain't over yet. Let's pray. God, we, we love you, Lord, and I'm just asking you to be here with us today. Uh, God, thank you for those people who gave their heart to you in the last service, and I'm just so thankful for this church and the way you're moving here. God, I pray that you'd be with us. Let us all leave change. Speak through me and speak to everybody in this room. And everybody said, amen. So there's this book out there called The Enemies of Excellence, and I want to talk to you a little bit about what this book teaches. Uh, This book has nothing to do with excellence, which is the name of the title, but has everything to do with something called self-sabotage. And what you see in this book is that what leads us to self-sabotage, the things that we should not be afraid of are exterior things, exterior forces. In fact, we usually weather the things that happen to us fairly well. Uh, We get over the high school breakups. We get over the financial hits. We get over the pandemics. We learn how to live in a split home. And even though those things are really hard, we still weather those things well. It's the enemy within that is usually the thing that destroys us. It's our own internal habits, our own choices, our own mistakes that lead us to something this book calls self-sabotage. And what you're going to see is that through Peter's story, there's actually things that led him to his greatest failure. It wasn't just off of whim. There are steps that all of us kind of go through before we hit something called self-sabotage. And the first step that we all face on a life towards destruction is number one, it's our ego. It always starts with ego. It always starts with pride. We've heard before that the root of all sin is pride, that pride comes before the fall. The lie that we believe when our ego slips into our life is I need to be noticed. I need to be noticed. I want eyes on me. Well, Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. There's a difference between pride and humility. I once heard it said this way, that humility is walking into a room having trained yourself to acknowledge, to appreciate, and to notice other people. While pride or ego is walking into a room thinking, who's gonna notice me today? You see, this was Peter's problem. He loved getting noticed. Might I remind you of a few instances? Remember that day where Jesus walked on water? That was Jesus's moment for him to show all of his disciples that he was the Lord of the wind and the waves and he controlled everything. So he's walking on water towards them and Peter's like, man, this could be my moment too. Hey, Jesus, how about you call me out there to walk on water and make me look cool in front of all my friends? The night where Jesus gets betrayed, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off a guy named Malchus's ear saying, Jesus, I'll defend you. And Jesus is like, man, what are you doing? Put your sword back. Don't you know this is what I'm supposed to do? One of my favorite instances is Jesus takes um, Peter up to this mountain where the transfiguration happens and, and Moses and Elijah from heaven come down and meet Jesus there. And Jesus tells Peter, just hang out on the side, don't say anything, but Peter just can't help himself. While those three are having a conversation, Peter stumbles over and he's like, guys, can I build y'all a shelter? Can I make y'all some food? And Jesus is like, bro, what are you talking about? I told you just to be quiet. So Peter speaks up when they're on their way before Jesus gets betrayed and says, I'll die with you. I'll never deny you. And I bet you Jesus was thinking, do you mean that? Or are you just saying that to get noticed? 
You know, it's okay to get noticed. It's okay to get the credit from time to time. But when it gets dangerous is when your desire to be noticed changes who you are. There were times in high school and even through college where I can remember before I walked into a room, I would go in with a preconceived attitude of whichever one I thought would get me more attention or get me noticed. I would go in sometimes uh, seeming a little down to see if somebody would, would, would give me attention. I would walk into rooms um, with a little more exuberance or excitement or energy, thinking that would maybe get me noticed. Or sometimes I would be a little extra annoying, a little extra loud, or a little extra flirtatious just to see if it would get me noticed. And when we constantly change who we are in order to get noticed, eventually we end up forgetting who we are and we get molded into somebody we don't wanna be. You see, ego, it just begins small where we want to be noticed, eyes on me, which then takes our eyes off of God, off of the mission, and onto ourselves. And that's always the first step. When we're like, man, I wanna be noticed, I know what's best. That's the first step. The second step is lack of spiritual discipline. Lack of spiritual discipline. My dad, speaking of discipline, was a, a, a genius discipliner towards us kids growing up. He got to the point where he didn't even have to hardly raise a finger in order to discipline us. Now, we had all the, uh, the Bible stories on VHS tape because we were homeschooled and pastor's kids growing up. It just made sense. Now, DVDs had already come out at this point, but we still had all the VHSs because homeschoolers are just behind in everything. I mean, we're behind in technological advances. We are behind in apparel, behind in pop culture, behind in ACT scores. I mean, you name it, we were just behind. And so that, that was my family growing up at least. So we had the VHS stories. Well, my brother and I, we, we messed up bad one time. We got in big trouble. Something We broke something. I don't remember what it was. It was either a light fixture or the dog. Something wasn't working right. And so my dad was mad. He called us into the living room. He said, boys, Watch the TV. Hunter's my older brother. He said, boys, watch the TV. And so he puts in a VHS, and it was the story of Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac. This is genius, okay? Let me, let me, this is really, really smart. We had never seen this story before. And if you're not familiar with this story, uh, God asked Abraham out of obedience to go sacrifice his one and only son as a foreshadow of what God would do for Jesus, Right? But in the very end, before he kills his son, God replaces his son with a sheep. But again, we've never seen this story. So we see everything leading up to that moment. Abraham is walking his son up the mountain and right before he takes the knife to him, right before the sheep gets replaced with Isaac, my dad would pause it and say, boys, go to your room. <laughs> oh no. And so we'd go up there and he wouldn't even come up there. He'd just let, let us wait it out all night long. Until finally woke up, you're like, you think it's okay to go out now, Hunter? You think dad's still out there waiting for us? Okay, my dad never did that, but that's genius right there. And I just gave all of you parents a tip. He was an excellent discipliner. There's a lie that we believe when we start to lack spiritual discipline, and it's, I'll get, I'll get to it later. You know, we all, we all have procrastination instincts inside of us. We're all procrastinators to a degree. I feel like I got behind it in the eighth grade and I still haven't caught up, but why is it so important to discipline your spirit right now? Not later, but why is it so important to discipline it right now? Because spiritual discipline is what allows you to avoid temptation right now. 
I saw something new in scripture and it has to do with this exact passage and I just want you guys to see it. Remember, the night Jesus was betrayed, he predicts Peter's denial. He predicts the pit that he's going to fall into and before it happens, he invites all of his disciples to pray and then Jesus goes off alone and prays. And then he comes back and it says in verse 40, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour? Like, I'm, a, I'm about to be betrayed. Couldn't y'all pray for an hour? And then I think he remembers what he said to Peter. It says he looks at Peter. He asks Peter. So he's looking at Peter in the eyes. He says, Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus was saying, Peter, I've given you a way out of your temptation, but it's going to take some work. Jack Hiles a pastor said it this way, the difference between success and failure is work. In other words, the difference between you falling into that same pit of temptation over and over and over again, or you overcoming that pit of temptation is whether or not you're willing to spend time with Jesus. And guys, I could just argue that it's even more important today that we spend an excess amount of time with him because we live in the era of content. I mean, there are so many things that are getting pushed into our lives and pushed into our minds via social media, news networks, whatever. I've heard that the average teenager spends four hours a day on social media. The average adult spends up to three hours a day on social media. So many opinions, content, things we probably shouldn't hear, things we definitely shouldn't see are coming into our minds. What do we do with that? Well, it says in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, Guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Meaning that every attitude, every choice, everything you do starts with what you're allowing into your mind. So maybe you're waking up and you're wondering why you've been a little bit more sluggish lately. Like spiritually, man, I just feel tired. I don't have hunger. Maybe you've been missing your quiet time with the Lord. Maybe you've been canceling plans or the relationships that used to mean a lot to you, you're not valuing anymore, or you're being disrespectful to loved ones, not on purpose, it's just happening. Everything seems out of order. It's lack of spiritual discipline. It's the lack of you letting God guard your heart by inviting him into your life every single day. And I once heard when it comes to spiritual discipline that it's a lot easier to prepare than it is to repair. And I'd rather you guys be on the prepare side than the repair side, because when we don't have discipline, it's really, really difficult to fix things that we've broken. I'd rather you be on the repair side of a torn apart relationship. I'd rather you not have to repair one. I'd rather you not have to repair a broken heart. I'd rather you not have to repair your quiet time with the Lord because this is what happens in our life. We get out of whack spiritually and before we know it, we get into this cycle where all year long, we're just trying to repair things that we didn't have discipline in. And because we're imperfect humans, the way that we try to repair, the way that we try to cope is through the third step and it's through the use of indulgences. Y'all see the path we're taking here? It starts off with ego. It's like, I wanna be noticed. I know what's best, but we don't know what's best. And so then our spirit gets out of whack. And when our spirit gets out of whack, we start saying yes to things we thought we would never say yes to. Okay, so now we start to let indulgences into our life. The definition of an indulgence is the excess or overuse of something in our life. I have a cousin 
Her name is Emily. She lives in, in Florida, and she is addicted to those Celsius energy drinks. Anybody know what a Celsius energy drink is? I'll tell you a little something about them. They have way too much caffeine in them, and they taste way too good. I mean, they are addicting. She said she started off drinking one a day, and then it went to like two a day, then like maybe three a day. She said now she's gotten to the point where she has, this is crazy, she has a mini fridge stacked and stocked of Celsius drinks right by her bed. She says, Tanner, I can't get out of bed in the morning unless I hear the sound of one of those cans crack open. And I was like, girl, you got yourself a problem. We got to fix this. Whether it's a serious indulgence or a funny indulgence, the lie that we believe when we start to participate in this is I deserve it. I, I deserve this thing that is aiding me. I deserve this thing that's distracting me from the lack of discipline that I've had in my life. Or we justify it. And usually the way we justify indulgences is we say, I'm doing this little thing to keep me from doing this worse thing or worser thing. I don't know the word, but to keep me from doing that more worse thing down the road. You know what I'm trying to say? Or I've heard this said to, to me from young adults, guys before, my life is mismanaged and I'm out of sync with my wife. Um, I, our, our romance life is not where it's supposed to be, but I know I'm not gonna find another partner, but I still have certain desires, so I'm just gonna suppress those by indulging in pornography. They, they, they justify it. Other times, coping mechanisms aren't even sins at first, but they lead to sin. It, it's one glass of wine that leads to three or five, depending on the day. It's a stress reliever that leads to an addiction or distraction from life. I just want you guys to see the warning, though, against certain things that maybe aren't sins at first but could lead there. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says this. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my own whims or I'd be a slave to everything. And, and, and I read that verse to you guys here today to tell you that if you don't have a clear line for when you say no, you'll say yes to anything. So just when's the last time, just go here with me for a second. When's the last time you told your flesh no? Because there's a difference within us. We have two things. We have our spirit and we have our flesh. And the moment you've given your heart to Christ, the spirit is what leads you towards heaven. The flesh is what leads you toward worldly desires. And in our flesh, even though we have given our heart to Christ, we'll still try to pull you back into the life you once lived. So when's the last time you told your flesh no? When's the last time you said, this show that I'm watching, maybe this show isn't sin, but when I watch it, something just doesn't feel right in my spirit, so I'm not gonna watch it. When's the last time you said, young person, going to that party, it's not sin that maybe I just go, but when I go, I'm tempted to do things I know I shouldn't do. It makes me into a person I don't wanna be, so I'm just not gonna go. When's the last time you said, following this person on social media, they're not sin. It's not sin that I follow them, but every time they post, I find myself comparing myself to them in a negative way, so I'm just not gonna go to their page for now. When's the last time you said, watching that news channel, it's not sin that I watch it. In fact, sometimes it's good. I just find I have more negative thoughts when I watch it. So I'm just gonna limit my time I watch it for now. When's the last time you told your flesh no? You know, we don't know if Peter ran to indulgences, but we do know that Peter ran away. And what happens with our indulgences, just like Peter ran and hid, is we hide our indulgences from other people. 
because we say this person just wouldn't understand why I'm doing this because they don't understand my life. So we hide things. And hiding repetitively leads to the fourth step, and that's isolation. Isolation. And there's a lie that we believe when it comes to isolation. We've isolated ourselves, and it's that I can do it on my own, or I can fix this on my own. Isolation. Matthew 26, 75 says, suddenly Jesus' words flash through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. He goes back to the life that he used to live. He goes back to fishing, thinking it's better off if I just separate myself as if he never walked with Jesus, as if he never saw the miracles that Jesus performed, because that's what shame will do. You mess up and you still love God, but you think he doesn't want anything, doesn't want to have to do anything with you. And so you separate yourself from him. You separate yourself from leading. You separate yourself from serving and you just, you just isolate yourself. Maybe you don't isolate yourself physically, otherwise you wouldn't be here right now. But it's still possible to be in close vicinity to God, yet still be closed off spiritually. We saw it with the Pharisees, didn't we? They were right around, they they were so close to the truth, yet their hearts were too hard to let vulnerability within. Proverbs 18.1 says, one who separates himself seeks his own desire. Anytime we isolate, it starts off with sin. It starts off with us seeking something that our flesh craves. That's the first step. And then the second step says he quarrels against all sound wisdom. That's why you gotta be concerned when somebody you love starts to separate themselves from godly relationships because that's the first step. And then the second step is they'll start to disregard uh, advice in their lives. You see, when we, when we isolate and don't make room or don't make a move, towards healthy relationships, it's at that point where no one's allowed in, where we're all alone, where we don't have anybody checking in on us. Even if we do, we haven't given them access and full disclosure. It's at that point where we're the most vulnerable to make the decision we never thought we would make. And and that's the fifth and final stage, that's self-sabotage. Now, I don't want anybody to be at this stage here today, or even if you've gotten this close, I wanna give you a little bit of hope for what you can do next. Because there's a story about Johnny Cash, the man in black from Arkansas, actually. This guy grew up in church and then he made it really, really big. But ego got to his head because he was successful. And then he had a lack of spiritual discipline, so he ran to indulgences for him, specifically the drug he used were amphetamines, and he got hooked on them. He felt bad about it and shameful about it, so he he pushed away all the people in his life that meant the most to him until he had absolutely nothing. And even though he was big, he writes it in his own autobiography, he felt totally empty inside. So he decided what he was gonna do, and you can read about this if you just search it, that he was gonna crawl back into a cave with a flashlight until the batteries on his flashlight went out, and then he was just gonna lay down and die there, and that was gonna be the end of Johnny Cash. And that's exactly what he did. He crawls back into this cave until the flashlight or the battery on his flashlight goes out. It's pitch black. He can't see a thing. And he just sits there and he's like, this is it for me. But then he begins to explain while he was in that moment that something started to stir up in his spirit, like a voice from within started to say, Johnny, this isn't the end for you. You got to get up and you got to start crawling. And he's like, well, I don't even know which direction to go. I can't see anything. But he just started to crawl. He just started to move. 
And as he moved to a certain direction, he began to see a light, and that light that he saw was actually the mouth of the cave. It was the the end of the cave, the entryway to it, and two friends were there waiting for him, calling out his name. He has no idea how they knew to come there, but they found him. They brought him to a hospital because he was actually still doped up at the time. He went to a rehab. He rededicated his life to Christ. Everything changed for him. That was the first half of his life. The second half of his life, we know that he started going on crusades with Billy Graham. Billy Graham went around to these stadiums preaching the gospel and Johnny was leading worship, singing this wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found. At the end of his life, he goes on MTV. Can you think of a more secular channel than MTV? He goes on MTV and he begins preaching. The shame that you feel in your life doesn't have to exist forever. There is a God who loves you and a God who will take that burden away because he began to crawl. And I think God is telling you here in this place today, even if crawling spiritually is all you can do, I think God is saying, that's enough for me. I can meet you there. You know, the darkest season of my life, and Keys, you're welcome to come out. I'm like a couple minutes from being done. The darkest season of my life, I was 19 years old, and I've always been a happy kid. I think I've only been depressed one day in my life, and it was when LSU lost to Alabama in the national championship in 2011. It took me like two days to get past that. Well, my whole life, I started running from God as I began to realize that acceptance of men and people was a lot more fun than acceptance of God because I couldn't see God tangibly, but I could fit into different crowds. And that brought me purpose, but that purpose was fleeting, right? And so I followed different crowds and I had some friends go up to the University of Arkansas and I followed them and I love that school. It's a great school. It just wasn't God's plan for me. And I was up there and my spirit was out of whack. Um, I had indulgences of my own. And it led me to a place where I was so isolated. I woke up one morning up there. It was a sophomore in college. And I've never felt this way in my life. It scared the crud out of me because I remember thinking, I have no purpose today. Do I even have purpose in my life? And the scariest part about it is I didn't even know who I could call. I had friends that cared about me, but I had pushed everybody away. I had, I had isolated myself. I didn't even know who I could call. And I was like, man, this is not good. And I remember God saying, well, Tanner, you gotta do something. What are you gonna do? So I gained the courage finally just to call my dad who I hadn't been honest with in about six years time. And I told him everything. I told him everything. And he says, son, it's okay, I'll be up there. He drove up there. He was there in two hours and 15 minutes, which is the distance from Conway to Fayetteville. And he just pointed me back on the right track. He gave me grace. He said, but you can't keep living this way. Look, when you, when you rededicate your life to him and get on your feet with God, you may not experience the promise that he has for you immediately, but the Bible says you can experience freedom immediately. And sometimes that's more valuable than the promise just to have eternal freedom, internal freedom in our lives. And and I know what you may be thinking though, man, I can't re-ante up with God. Maybe I could tell somebody, maybe they would understand, but I can't re-ante up with God because I've disappointed him too many times. Look, I don't know what your hands have touched. I don't know what your eyes have seen, but I do know this, Peter was restored. He denied Christ. He was his friend, the son of God. Yet remember, two months later, he's found preaching, talking about his friend, Jesus. How did that happen? There had to have been a conversation. There had to have been restoration, right? 
Yes, there was. Even though Peter, I'm sure, was like, man, I can't do it because I've disappointed God too many times. You've probably been there too. Let me just teach you something briefly about disappointment. Disappointment is the gap between expectation and reality. The only way for us to be disappointed is if we expect something to happen and it doesn't go the way we expected it to go. And the reason there is um, a gap there is because there is an unknown area that we don't know what's gonna happen because we can't see into the future. But the Bible says that God is all knowing. He knows everything, meaning there's no unknown for God, meaning it's impossible. This is crazy, but go with me here. That means it's impossible to disappoint God. He already knew you were going to mess up, yet he still showed up to Peter and he still shows up to you. Not because he's okay with your sin, but because he loves you too much to leave you in that pit. It's like, I wanna take you out. I wanna show you a better life. So he does this to Peter. Peter, remember, goes back to his old life, yet he finds Peter. He says, Peter, I got something for you. Let's have a private conversation. And he pulls Peter to the side. John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17. Man, there's hope in this today. Maybe you've seen this verse before around Easter, but hopefully I can show you something new about it. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, that's already powerful, but I think we missed some of the power behind it because if you read the Bible in its ancient manuscripts, it was written in Greek. And the complication there is that Greek is a more expressive language than English, where we only have one word for love. The, the Greeks have four, four words for love. One word they have for love is storge, and that means natural affection. It's the love that you just naturally feel for a kid if you're a parent. Uh, the second word for love is, is eros, and that's where we get the word erotic. That's a physical attraction. Like, man, I love chocolate. That's, that's eros. Phileo is a different type of love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's a love between friends. And then the last word for love is agape. That's unconditional love. That's saying there's, there's nothing that you can do that is going to separate me from being here for you. I'm always gonna love you. So Jesus, again, he says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he uses the word agape. Do you love me unconditionally? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter uses the word phileo. I don't know if it's unconditional, God, because I've messed up a lot. I've disappointed you a lot, but I'm willing to love you like a friend. And he says, okay, that's enough for me. Go feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. You know that I love you like a friend. It probably would be agape. It probably would be unconditional love before Thursday night, but I know that I messed up. I don't know if I can re any up and love you the way that you want me to. And then check this out though. This is so important. The third time Jesus looks at Simon, son of John, and Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? And this time Jesus changes the word. He says, do you phileo love me? Do you love me like a friend? Because Jesus is willing to meet you where you are, where you are. And again, he's not okay with where you are, but he wants to pull you out of where you are. And sometimes it takes a friend to pull you out of that. 
And so just like Johnny, remember he crawled out of that cave and saw a light. Maybe your light here today is a friend. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a counselor, somebody you just need to start talking to. Maybe it's a life group, or maybe it's for the first time in your life, full surrender to God, saying, my spirit has been out of sorts. God, I'm listening to you. Would you bow your heads with me all across this place? I wanna pray just for a, a, a couple groups of people. I'm gonna make this brief. Look, if you're just here today and, and you would just boldly say, man, I'm, I've fallen into one of those four pits that leads to self-sabotage, whether it's ego has just slipped in, pride has, has slipped in, whether your spirit has just been out of sorts, you just need to kind of reset your heart towards God. Maybe it's indulgences, maybe it's isolation, you haven't let anybody in. If one of those four apply to you, would you just lift up your hand at me so I can pray for you in this place? Yeah, it's okay to be bold. Come on, like I said, the first step out of the pit is vulnerability. You're being vulnerable here, right here, right now. Maybe not everybody's looking, but I see you, God sees you. Okay, thank you. Put your hand down, I wanna pray for you guys right now. Lord, I wanna thank you for forgiveness. I wanna thank you for grace. God, I know that we follow our own desires from time to time, yet God, your agape love is still there for us. So Lord, my eyes are on you. God, I'm saying right now, whatever this thing is that I'm holding in my heart, I want you to think about it. I want you to give it to him. Say, Lord, it's yours. I'm surrendering it to you, a father. It doesn't control me anymore. I'm finding somebody to tell it to because God, I know that you forgive me, but when I tell somebody else, that's when the healing process starts. So God, show me my next step. Show me a friend, show me a life group leader, show me a, a pastor I can go up to today and say, hey, I'm done with X. I'm done with whatever it is. Okay, keep your heads bowed all across this place. If you're here today, I, I just don't ever like passing up on an opportunity to do this. If you're here today and you just don't have a personal relationship with Christ, maybe you would have raised your hand to all four or five of those categories, but you're just like, I don't even know if that applies to me because I don't have a relationship with him. Well, listen, Jesus, like I said earlier, is willing to meet you here right now. The Bible says that if you just speak the name of Christ, that you will be saved. And if you wanna walk out of here, with full security that you're gonna spend forever with him, you in a relationship with the Father. Would you just raise up your hand at me so I can see you? Yeah, I got you right here, buddy. Thank you, my man, I see you. Anybody else here? I see you in the back, thank you. Okay, amen. And I got you back here too. A few hands, praise God. Okay, I'm gonna say a prayer. I'm just gonna ask you to repeat this as best as you can after me, just, just quietly enough where you can hear it. Just say, dear Lord, I love you. And God, I know you went to the cross to die for my sins because I am a sinner. I've messed up bad. Lord, thank you for forgiving me. I surrender my life to you. I believe in you. I love you, oh God. I'm running after you. I'm all yours. In Jesus' mighty name, the whole church said, Amen. If you love Jesus in this place, can you just give him a hand? Let's give him some glory.